Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, he took the toughest reporting assignments in Texas, the stories of Dick Revis. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. For over four decades, Dick Revis wrote about the overlooked underbelly of Texas. He embedded himself into communities that were closed to outsiders, especially reporters. But he managed to get close enough to tell the stories of the Branch Davidians, biker gangs, homeless day laborers, to Ku Klux Klan, Mexican revolutionaries, and more. A selection of his writings have been compiled into a new book, Texas Reporter, Texas Radical. Well, I am a radical, but my journalism doesn't have political in. I always tell people I'm a left-winger because I guess I want to evangelize for the left. But um, my stories are not op-eds by a long shot. And my experience in writing them was that right-wingers liked them better than left-wingers. How did right-wingers enjoy your journalism more than left-wingers? Most important example is the book I did about David Koresh and Waco. The gun rights people read it. They still think it's great. It's still in print and still selling. But I'm not a gun writer. I think they ought to take up semi-automatic weapons. My book shows that the FBI was negligent. The ATF was incompetent in that confrontation with the Davidians. But the whole problem there started with guns. So let's talk a little bit about your reporting on the Branch Davidian standoff that became led into the book of the Ashes of Waco. You wrote one of the early books about Waco. They're still writing books about Waco. It was kind of controversial when it came out because people were saying that uh, your your take on it was too sympathetic to the Branch Davidians. Uh, right. But it eventually has pretty much taken hold as what the general public or what historians tend to, tend to think about what actually happened during that, that raid and then standoff and then that tragic end. Tell me more about how you came to write this book. I, at the time, I was working at the Dallas Observer, an alt-weekly. And when the shooting, the ATF raid occurred on April the 28th, which I believe was a Sunday, on Monday, we had an editorial meeting, and they were saying somebody ought to do a story about that, and nobody volunteered. And my editor, Peter Elkin, says, Revis, why don't you do it? And I said, why should we do it? And the people at the editorial meeting said, well, David Koresh thinks he's Jesus. And I said, so what? Lots of people do and they said he had two semi-automatic weapons that had been converted to automatic. And I said, I know dope dealers got more than that. So, I, you know, I had no interest in the story. But I needed to do something, and I worked for the Dallas Observer. So I went down there, and during the 51-day siege, the only source of information 
was the daily FBI and ATF press conferences. Some of the Davidians had come out, but they'd been put in jail. The federal authorities wouldn't give you permission to interview them. So the only source was the government. And I, I attended a press conference, and I went back and told my editors that I had been a Mexico correspondent where the government gave press conferences and nobody else did. And that those press conferences in Mexico had good food, where the ATF and FBI only provided coffee and donuts. So I wasn't interested. I thought you had to get both sides of the story. And no no reporters were allowed into Mount Carmel, so you couldn't get both sides of the story. And I said, if anything comes up where I can get the other side, I'll look at the story again. When Mount Carmel burned down, a couple of days after that, I got a call from a reporter at Soldier of Fortune, Jim Pate. He told me all of the survivors who were not jailed were in one hotel in Waco. So I went uh, I went down there, and he couldn't go. Pate couldn't go, so he called me. I went down there, and, and they wouldn't talk to me. So I rented a room in the same hotel and sat in the lobby for a day or so. The FBI had run over their cars with tanks, and they needed rides places, and I gave them rides. And after a couple of days of that, they decided they could talk to me. I spent the next six months studying their theology under the tutorship of one of the people who of Livingstone Fagan, who could call me from prison. The, the run-up to the Branch Davidian standoff, the Waco standoff, you, you write about that as well, and you, you brought a different view because the official report, according to the FBI and the ATF, we were told that they were uh, hoarding weapons illegally and that they were doing child abuse, uh, sex child abuse, with these um, marriages to David Koresh. But you also say that this, this was all brought about because of, of politics. The, the raid was triggered by, by politics. That's right. The, um, that is what I surmise. Well, the, how? What politics? The, AT, the ATF was being sued by both its female and its non-white employees for discrimination. And we had a Democratic Congress. And ATF was coming up for a budget hearing. And so I think they pulled off the raid thinking, hey, here's this armed white Christian group. The Democrats will think it's a good thing we raided them. Well, the raid was botched, to say the least. The raid was botched. Also, the charges against them were botched. The younger generations that didn't uh, experience the, the standoff may not recognize the fact that this was uh, when it happened. We had this dramatic video because the ATF had tipped off a, I guess, a local TV station and that they were going to do this raid. And when the agents stormed the building, the, the compound, the uh, people inside opened fire. There was bloodshed. Right. If the ATF had paid attention to the theology, they would have known 
that the Davidians thought the world outside was Babylon and that it was their duty to defend their faith against the Babylonians. When the Davidians looked out the window and saw the ATFers coming after them, they said this is. They had always thought there would be a confrontation with Babylon, but they were uh, illegally selling weapons. But probably the proportional response was out of, out of kilter. I've never seen any evidence that they were illegally selling weapons. They were selling semi-automatic AR-15 at gun shows with under the license of a Waco dealer. None of that was illegal. There is no law against hoarding firearms. You can go in and buy a hundred of them at once. The question that came up was whether they had converted any of those semi-automatics to automatics. The ATF said they had. I've never seen any evidence that they did. You mentioned the child abuse charge okay, against yeah. the Davidians. The federal government has no jurisdiction over child abuse. That's a state matter. And the local DA in Waco in McClellan County had conducted an investigation like two years earlier. And the truth of the matter was David was sleeping with underage girls with permission of their parents. And the DA's office couldn't find any parents who would complain about that. So they closed the case. But the ATF, in any case, had no jurisdiction over that. It claimed that Davidians were also making drugs because it, it was making methamphetamine because it wanted to, how do you say, it was supposed to establish a federal standard. And they tried to do it on guns and Drugs. The Waco standoff, the the burning at uh, Mount Carmel, a lot of questions about what happened that day during the the fire, the end of the standoff, and questions about who started the fire. The uh, federal government said it started from inside. Other people uh, looking at the video claimed it was set by the feds. What was your conclusion? My conclusion was that we didn't know and i think that's still true who shot first during the atf raid and who started the fire during the fbi's period in in waco i can't unravel those things enough to take one side or another and i've looked i didn't know how that fire started and i don't think anybody knows today the fbi men and their tanks and the Army tanks they used had at their feet a box of incendiary rounds and a box of what you would call tear gas. And they, those two rounds fired from the same gun. And you, you have to pick, shoot them one at a time, load and shoot one at a time. They're the same size. An FBI man could have been reaching down and picked up his round from the wrong box. The reason why this event has so much currency today, it does seem to have sparked uh, a lot of the government mistrust movements that we have today, or at least uh, they, they look at it as a important event that informs them. Do you think that the in your reporting 
that the Branch Davidians were just uh, should have been just left alone, or should have been, or was it a a the government was too aggressive, too grandiose, too flamboyant in their attempts to uh, assert the law enforcement because of uh, and that led to the tragic consequences. I think everything you just said is true. Perhaps more than all of that, they got tired of being in Waco. These were people from out of town, and 51 days is a long time. I think that that started motivated them. And what I think they should have done was there were two theologians who understood the Davidian theory and had come up with a version where they could show David scriptures that would cause him to change his mind. That should have been tried. If that hadn't have worked, they should have just encircled the place and waited. When Subcomandante Marcos in Mexico and his people invaded uh, some towns in Chiapas and then were driven back into the, to the jungle, the Mexican army surrounded that jungle with tanks and waited two years, never going in. Because they said if we go in to arrest them, there could be gunfire and their children who lived there. And the Mexican government can wait two years. Why can't the United States government? This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies in conversation with veteran Texas journalist Dick Revis. A new book is out with a collection of his reporting. Before you were a reporter, you were active in the civil rights movement in the uh, 60s and also in uh, labor. Can you talk about what the world was was like at that time and how it led you to become a journalist? Uh, What led me to becoming a journalist was I needed a way to make money (laughs) after the movements of the 60s collapsed. And that's what led me to become a journalist. I understood from the first all culture reflects the taste and preferences of the people who have the most money, of the bourgeoisie. And I understood from the first that I could not use newspapers or journalism to advance causes, or at least advance those I wanted to advance. So I was very careful in everything I wrote to make it nonpartisan. Uh, the Waco book is in some ways an exception because I do accuse the FBI and the ATF of incompetence and negligence, but I never accuse them of purposefully killing anybody on the day of the fire. And when I look at the shooting of Steve, uh, the how do you say, one of the shootings, of a man they killed, I think they finished him off. But uh, they, I, I don't see an intent to murder permeating the whole operation. But you write in the book about how the Nixon 1968 election victory over George McGovern, how that was an awakening for you. Yeah, that that showed me. How do you say that? I don't know that it was it was an awakening. It told me the country was turning right from what it had been, was headed off in a right-wing direction. 
And that meant that I could not spend my life as an anti-war agitator. And so I had to get a job. So here we are. It's been a while since 1968. Are we? I guess we're still in that process of that movement to the right. It's still that's still where we are. We moved as a country to the, especially to the right of Roosevelt, even of Lyndon Johnson, who, who, prosecuted the Vietnam War. We're to the right of all of that. Some of us in 1968 believed there would be a revolution. I thought, yeah, there may be one, but it'll be 20 years. 20 years ran out in 1988. And so it's, especially on the black liberation front, we haven't made much progress. Before you were a writer for Texas Monthly and uh, San Antonio Express News and The Light and other papers, you were writing for the underground newspapers scene in Texas, like the RAG in, in Austin. What role did the underground press have in informing the public? Why was it necessary to have those underground newspapers? The, there was a strong counterculture movement in the 60s, the hippies, which the anti-war movement did not create. But most of the people in the anti-war movement were half hippie, and some of them 100%. And so uh, they could not find expression in the Daily Texan. I was at, at, at UT Austin. The editor of the Daily Texan at that time was a guy who later confessed to having been an informant for the FBI. <clears throat> and he wouldn't let people write things about that were anti-war. And he wouldn't, how do you say, of course was not friendly to marijuana. Um, and so <laughs> the... The anti-war people who were friendly to marijuana started those those newspapers. There were other things, I mean, like dorm hours for women, cohabitation of people who weren't legally married. There was a whole, what's the word, smorgasbord of countercultural preferences. Things that many of us would take for granted today. Today, today, that's standard, right? That's everywhere. But but the press, but writing about these things in, in, in these underground newspapers, and it was a thriving, I wouldn't say thriving, but it was a sustainable way of uh, communicating to people who couldn't find news and information outside of the, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media, which was necessary. It was absolutely necessary because the mainstream media until 1968 at least was backing the Vietnam War and you, how do you say all governments try to control their opposition which means all of them try to influence newspapers advertisers who tend to be pro-government try to influence newspapers and so on the, um, so you said you try to keep your personal politics out of your journalism, particularly when you were writing for, I guess you would call them a mainstream media outlets. But 
I can't help but think about the choices that you made and what you would cover, whether it would be about people who were in the country uh, without authorization, uh, people who were in the country without papers, biker gangs, also the people who are homeless and who are day laborers, and even the Ku Klux Klan. You approach this as a character study in your reporting. It's all very character-driven, uh, but you were writing on people who were, who were typically overlooked and not dealt into mainstream society. And was that a deliberate choice? Yes, I think it was, at least in this sense. When I went to work for Texas Monthly, I told them I would not write about Texas or national politics. Because if I did, I would have to say things about my sources, that they were the campaign finance equals bribes, for example. Um I would have to take my sources at face value and not question them. And I didn't, I didn't want to be involved in that. Um, so I never dealt with any political, like state elections or national elections. And that, uh, generally speaking, and I think this has something to do with me having been in Alabama for the civil rights movement. My picture of the world, once I had been in Alabama for a while, was that all white officials are untrustworthy, if not openly hostile. And so I think I suspected every white official of being a racist or a crook. And I wasn't far off. Also, it's the job of journalists to suspect their sources. Some of the things you wrote about a long time ago, still relevant today, particularly the stuff you write about, like uh, immigration and labor. Uh, I, I think my my coverage of undocumented aliens came early. I wrote a book about it in 1970. I think it was published in 1979 uh, or 78. And early on, I said, this is going to be a big issue. The immigration I covered was of single males. That's what it traditionally had been in Texas. Today, the situation has changed quite a bit. The dynamics that underlay it haven't changed at all. But today, uh, immigration is a problem involving families, not single males. A lot of the uh, reporting or writing about Texas today doesn't really use the same approach that, that you did in, in studying characters and writing about people and writing about their daily struggles. Everything seems to be more trite, writing about the best tacos and best barbecue and not really exploring the state at the ground level uh, where people actually are. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I think the the reason why it's always been that way, or almost always, is essentially that newsrooms are set up to get the stories that can be gotten by telephone interviews and web. When I did stories, 
I tried to go among the people I was riding with and be a fly on the wall there. And, but how do you say, I was with them and heard remark, how do you say, when you go to interview an official and you pull out that notepad, what they might tell you informally is unspoken, isn't said. They don't, they give you a party line. And the same thing for public information officers everywhere. Their job is manipulating the media. I went to the, how do you say, I looked at the people who weren't controlled in that way and wrote about them. Uh, I think most notably, in order to, to write about the banditos, I bought a Harley and rode with them. And while I was working on that, got run over and hospitalized for four months. Um, but I felt I had to do that because that would tell me who the banditos were. You also went undercover as an urban day laborer. Oh, yeah, for the last book, for the last book before this. I went to work at day labor halls. I didn't tell people I was a reporter. They wouldn't hire me. That's an example of the reporting I did. Um, I worked as a security guard. I worked at a mental hospital for the criminally insane. Instead of calling the officials to say, do you beat up patients in your mental hospital? I went and got a job there. And when did they? The problem I found was that I was... I became a guard or an attendant at a mental hospital for male criminally insane people. And the problem I found was that some of them were insane and others were just trying to beat a murder rap. And those who were just trying to beat the murder rap beat up on the insane ones. And that's what I found, not the that the attendants or guards did, but that the patients did, the psychopathic patients. Are we missing important information about what's happening in uh, Texas because we're not getting more reporters to do that type of reporting? That's shoe leather reporting. Yes, we journalism has traditionally missed it. It has tended to be official news. What you can get, I mean, I'm pointing to a financial motive here. What you can get by telephone, that's, that doesn't cost anything but the reporter's salary. When I did stories, I had to be subsidized to be, how do you say, I had expenses, right? And newspapers trying to make a profit don't, don't allow, we would... At Texas Monthly, we would spend two months in the field for, I'd say that was the average, for every story we wrote. You can't do that anymore. Texas Monthly doesn't do it anymore because the print media are all in peril. They don't have the money they used to have. What do you think about your writing being compiled into this anthology, Dick? I thought it was a great honor. They came to me and asked me if the two professors from Sam Houston State, if they could do an anthology of mine. And I said yes, 
and they picked out the stories to run. I don't understand why they picked out some of them they did and maybe didn't pick others, but I thought it was a good objective test of my value, at least to those people. And who do you want to read this book? Well, anybody who lives in Texas, I suppose, and if possible, other journalists. But the print media are in such trouble now that we're lucky for any news we get. Dick Revis has authored six books, including The Ashes of Waco, If White Kids Die, and Catching Out, The Secret World of Day Laborers. Revis's collection of reporting for Texas Monthly and various other newspapers have been compiled into a new book, Texas Reporter, Texas Radical, The Writings of Journalist Dick J. Revis. Michael Dinsom is the editor. It's published by Texas Review Press. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. Find us online at tpr.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you download your favorite podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.